our task for this morning is to unpack uh, Romans 12. We're going to do that shortly. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open. I'm going to ask you to do a few things in your Bibles today, so it'll be helpful uh, if they're open at Romans 12. Um, I'm preaching from the 2011 NIV. It's going to be almost exactly the same. There might be a few points where uh, sentences look slightly different, but I'm sure you guys will uh, be able to follow along and figure that out. Uh, let me pray before we get into it, and then we'll, uh, we will unpack uh, this passage before us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you've given to us. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you have revealed yourself to us in it and that you haven't left us guessing what you're like but uh, you have told us what you're like and you have instructed us on how uh, you would like us to live in response to who you are. Lord we don't always do that and we confess that to you uh, but we pray this morning that as we open this part of your word Romans 12 that you would help us to understand it, uh, that you would help us to respond to you uh, in faith and obedience and that you would indeed transform our minds and our lives into the likeness of Christ and we pray all these things for yours and for his praise and glory. Amen. Uh, earlier this week I was scrolling through uh, Facebook as I do on a semi-regular basis and there before me was a picture a friend of mine had posted of her brand new bathroom uh, and she'd posted underneath this picture uh, the comment, we've just had our bathroom redone and a toilet added I can lay down in this bath. Uh, the bathroom doesn't flood when we have a shower. The kids can see themselves in the mirror and no more child accidents while queuing for the toilet. I know it's just stuff, but this sight brings me so much joy. The joy of transformation. Uh, when all the things that have been annoying us uh, disappear, it's out with the old, it's in with the new. We live in a world that loves transformation. And that longs for transformation. You only need to turn on your TV to see it. So many reality TV shows that dominate our screens feed into this desire of ours for transformation, whether it be houses and gardens and properties that are transformed, uh, our bodies being transformed in The Biggest Loser, our careers transformed in MasterChef, our relationships transformed in The Farmer Wants a Wife and the latest horrendous show on Channel 7, The Seven Year Switch, I think it's on Channel 7. Uh, what is it that appeals about all these shows? It's that they tap into this desire in all of us to have our lives transformed. They give us hope that, that we too have the option of transformation. Whether we're content in our current circumstances or not, we like to know that if we ever need transformation, we can get it, can't we? They hold out the hope of transformation, of change, of being able to get rid of the old and bring in the new if we're, in a, if we're ever in a position that we want to. Our world longs for transformation, for renewal. Over the past four weeks, we've been working our way through Romans, looking at this question of renewal and transformation in the context of relationships and relationships in conflict in particular. We started in Romans 1 where, where Russell reminded us of the hope of the gospel which is the power of God to bring salvation from conflict with God to all who believe. And because the gospel reconciles us from conflict and restores our relationship with God, we as God's people are to be people who seek, who, who pursue reconciliation and restoration from conflict with others. 
In Romans 2 and 3, we saw the cause of conflict, that we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We've set our hearts on our own desires and purposes and worship the creation and not the creator. But again, the gospel provides hope for us with the promise of having our heart's desires transformed as we look to Christ and things above. We then turn to Romans 5. The genuine hope and peace and joy that was won at great cost by Christ. Hope and peace and joy that we too can pursue with each other. We can be genuine peacemakers, not peace breakers or peace fakers. Deep, genuine relationships that know hope and peace and joy are possible even with our enemies. And then in Romans 8, last week, we were encouraged to to persevere even when conflict persists. Because God is loving and God is in control. Nothing can thwart God's purposes. Nothing can separate us from God. We can do more than just hang on in conflict because we know God is working for our good in the midst of it and God is walking with us in it. The gospel provides great hope, doesn't it? And it's with this great hope and these great promises of the gospel in mind that we turn to Romans 12. As we turn our attention to Romans 12 this morning, it's helpful to realise this chapter marks a significant shift in Paul's letter to the Romans. I don't know if you noticed it as it was being read. Uh, Grab your Bibles, open it up. Here's the first thing I'm going to ask you to do in it. I want you to count as quickly as you can the number of commands in the passage. The number of times Paul instructs the Romans, instructs us to do or not do something. See if you can count how many there are. I had a go at it during the week. Uh, I counted between 35 and 40 commands in 21 verses. Uh, By contrast, the 36 verses of chapter 11 have four. Uh, Chapter 12 marks a significant shift in the focus of Paul's letter from instruction and communication of significant, uh, of uh, important theological truths to exhortations and commands, how we apply these theological truths. And there's a danger as we get into this part of the letter that we focus so much on the instruction and the commands that we forget the truths on which they're based. Uh, that we separate those two things. It would be a massive mistake to make. We must never separate the commands from the truths on which they're based. So what are the truths on which the commands of Romans 12 are based? Well, two of them are singled out. Uh, look, first at me, uh, look first with me at verse 1. Uh, Therefore, it starts. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. In one sense, the commands are based on all the truths that that Paul has taught through the first 11 chapters. Therefore, but, but at the start of Romans 12, this is the one that he turns to. Because of God's mercy... In light of, in view of God's mercy, all 40-ish commands that follow uh, flow from the truth that God is merciful to us. God is merciful to us, that we are deserving of judgment, that we are deserving of, of eternal separation from God, that we are deserving of being in eternal conflict with God. That is what we deserve, but God has graciously, lovingly, compassionately shown mercy to us at enormous cost to himself. God has shown mercy to us in in reconciling and restoring our relationship to him, 
in adopting us as his children. What a beautiful picture, adopting us as his children, in declaring us innocent and justifying us. God is merciful towards us. Paul doesn't, doesn't let us, doesn't allow us to separate the commands from the one who makes them, our merciful God, in view of God's mercy. The first truth. The second theological truth here in Romans 12, which will become important later on, uh, is in the second half of verse 19. Uh, Look there with me. Uh, God is merciful, but God is also judge. God is merciful, we've read, and in verse 19 we're reminded that God is judge. Don't take revenge, Paul writes to the Romans in verse 19. But leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. Justice is for God to administer. He is the just God. He will avenge, he will repay justly. Uh, It's a quote from Deuteronomy 32. uh, Moses' final words to the Israelites before they entered the promised land with Joshua. And in the context of Deuteronomy, a context the Romans would have been familiar with, Uh, What God says is when you're in the promised land and it feels like you're surrounded by conflict, when it feels like conflict is all around you, when it feels like in the midst of that conflict I've abandoned you, know that I haven't. That's what Moses is saying in, in, in Deuteronomy 32. Don't take revenge. Trust me, God says, follow me, I will avenge. I will avenge because I won't let my name be ridiculed. That's what he says. In Deuteronomy 32, I won't let my name be ridiculed by those who oppose me and those who oppose you. That's the context that's brought here into Romans 12. So remember these two great theological truths. God is judge and will avenge. But God is merciful to those who come to him in humble faith. God is judge but he's a merciful one. And so in light of God's mercy, back in verse 1 and 2 of Romans 12, in light of God's mercy, Paul instructs our response. In light of God's mercy, offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true act of worship. That's how we're to respond to these theological truths. God is the just judge but has shown us mercy and so we respond to our merciful God by offering ourselves as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to him that's the first of the 40 or so commands in this chapter and in many ways it's the one that sums them all up isn't it offer yourselves as living sacrifices to God that is your true and proper worship of him who offered himself as a living sacrifice for you What does it look like to offer ourselves as living sacrifices? Paul continues in verse 2. Offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing and perfect will. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans 12 2 stands in stark contrast to, uh, to 
chapter 118, where we started our series, where we, where we read the wrath of God is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who, although they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God. Their thinking became futile and foolish. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshipped the creation rather than the creator. And so God gave them over to a depraved mind and the sinful desires of their hearts. God gave them over to a depraved mind and the sinful desires of their hearts. And in chapter 3, we read every single one of us stands convicted of this charge. The desires of our minds and our hearts, they're twisted, depraved, sinful, each and every one of us. But the promise of Romans 12 too is that our minds can be transformed. It's what we long for, isn't it? Our minds can be transformed such that they're no longer in opposition to God, but able to discern God's good and pleasing and perfect will. That is the promise of this passage and the command of these first two verses. Don't conform to the pattern of this world. Don't don't think like this world thinks. Don't act like this world acts. This world is depraved and twisted in its thinking. Don't push God to the side. Don't ignore him don't think you know better than him he's God this is his creation we are his creation he knows best trust him don't go chasing after the things of this world they can't satisfy you they'll promise you to but they can't don't worship the idols of this day and age our world worships happiness it's all about being happy It worships reputation, financial and professional success, materialism, relationships, sexual fulfilment, money. They're the idols of this day and age. They're the things of this world of creation uh, that we are tempted to worship instead of the creator. They are the things that we sacrifice our godliness to and that we trust in to get us through life. And many of these things, they're good things. But we mustn't chase them instead of God. We mustn't trust them instead of God. We mustn't make them a higher priority than God because they will just disappoint you and leave you empty. Don't think like this world thinks. Its mind is depraved and twisted. Rather, have your minds transformed into the freedom and the peace and the contentment that comes from having God's good and pleasing and perfect will shape your lives and your thinking. Have your minds transformed into the freedom and the peace and the contentment that comes from having God's good and pleasing and perfect will shape your thinking. And did you notice in Romans how this transformation takes place? Did you notice the command is to be transformed by the renewing of your mind? The command isn't transform your mind but be transformed. This is something done to us. The renewing of our mind isn't something that we can do. The command is to let God transform your mind. And in that sense, it's both a command and it's a promise, isn't it? How does God do that? We jump back in Romans in chapter 8 that we looked at last week. We read in verse 5 that this, this transformation takes place through the work of God's Spirit that those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires, that the mind 
governed by God's Spirit, leads to life and peace. It's through His Holy Spirit to all who believe, given to all who believe, that God promises to transform our minds. That is God's work. It's not dependent on us. This is, uh, this is God's work, if we'll allow Him to do it and not harden our hearts to it. Be transformed, we're commanded, in the renewing of your mind. As you spend time with God, spend time in His Word, let His Spirit work in our lives. He will transform our minds, renew our minds. It's a wonderful promise, a command, as we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And so there are the truths. God is merciful and God is judge. And the broad command, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. Let him transform and renew your minds rather than following the patterns of this world. How does this play out in life? How does it play out in life? And how does it play out in conflict? Look with me at verse 3 and verse 9. We have about 40 odd commands here, as I said. I'm not going to unpack all of them. Uh, Verse 3 kind of summarises the first half of them. Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. Rather, think of yourself with sober judgment. Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. Rather, think of yourself with sober judgment. And from verse 4, Paul goes on to say, uh, demonstrate that humility in serving as God has called you to serve. Be humble, Paul says. Paul commands. In light of God's mercy, be transformed by the renewing of your minds rather than conforming to the pattern of this world and think of yourself with sober judgment. Be humble. Serve each other. Put put each other's needs before your own. And then from verse 9, which summarises the second group of commands, demonstrate that humility and service by loving others sincerely. Humility, service and love. Humility, service and love. It's not just the message of Romans 12, it's the message of many other places in the Bible. One of my favourites included, Philippians 2. Uh, Quickly flick there, forward a couple of pages if you want and read with me, Philippians 2. Keep your finger in Romans 12, we're coming back to it. Humility, service and love. Philippians 2 from verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's how we're to relate to each other in our relationships. Jesus is humble. Jesus is loving. Jesus is servant-hearted. He values others above himself, looking not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others, even if, even, even though, 
it cost him his life. And as his followers, as Christians, Paul exhorts us to have the same mindset in our relationships with each other. Humility, service, love. It's the message of Philippians 2. That's the example of Christ. It's the commands of Romans 12 that flow from the mercy shown to us by God himself. Humility, service and love. And so let's think about what that means as we turn our attention again to conflict. To conflict at home, to conflict in our workplaces, to conflict in church, to conflict in families. And the place to start, I think, is to turn the spotlight inward. To turn the spotlight on ourselves. Humble yourself. Think of yourself with sober judgment. It's easy in the midst of conflict, in whatever context, family, work, church, you name it. It is easy, very easy, to try and claim the moral high ground, isn't it? Our automatic response, I think, is to take the moral high ground, to find something, some minute point, if need be, that might give us that position. There are at least two sides to any argument. Turn the spotlight inward. Think of yourself with sober judgment. Ask yourself, how are you contributing to this conflict? What's the log in your eye that you can't see past to see the speck in the others? What is, what is the desire of your heart in this conflict that you cannot or will not let go of in order to bring about peace and restoration and reconciliation? Ken Sandy in the Peacemaker book that we've been referring to throughout this series keep, uh, explains the process we tend to follow that leads to conflict. It always starts with a desire might be a good desire it might be a bad desire but it always starts with a desire and when that desire isn't met we turn it into a demand we see it as something that we deserve or we we need to be happy or fulfilled so we no longer just desire the thing we demand it a desire for respect for example becomes a demand for respect a desire for love that's not a bad thing but it becomes a demand A desire for recognition in the workplace, again, not a bad thing, it becomes a demand. Our desires become demands and then when others get in the way of these demands, be that respect or love or recognition, justice, money, peace and quiet, whatever it is, when people get in the way of things we demand, we do two things, we judge them and then we punish them. We judge them, we criticise them. We nitpick, we, we attack them, we condemn them, we judge them and then we punish them. When someone fails to satisfy our demands and expectations and idols, our idols demand sacrifices be made, that's what they do. Our idols demand that someone be punished, we get angry, we speak hurtful words, we speak no words, we withdraw, we punish people. Romans 12 calls us to examine ourselves with sober judgment, to turn the spotlight inward. How am I contributing to this conflict? What is the desire of my heart? Is it a good thing? Have I turned it into a demand that I'm using to judge and punish others in this conflict? Have I made an idol out of something that I'm prepared to sacrifice my trust and obedience to God to?
Humble yourselves. Humble ourselves. Think of ourselves with sober judgment. Examine our own lives. That's the first principle. Having examined our own lives, then we can examine the other person's life, right? Then we can rip them apart and pick out all their faults. That's how we handle conflict, isn't it? No. No, having, having examined our own lives, it's not time to examine the other person's life, but time to ask how will we relate to others. Let me say that again. It's not our responsibility to examine the lives of others, but to ask ourselves, how will we relate to them? How will we relate to them? And we can do that. We can ask that question because of those theological truths that we started with, that God is judge and he won't let his name be ridiculed by those who oppose him. It is mine to avenge, God says. I will repay So we don't need to examine others' lives and judge them or punish them. We don't need to take revenge. We need to leave room for God's wrath. That's what Romans says, God's justice. Trust him with that. Rather, we need to ask if we will respond with mercy as God has shown mercy to us. Will we respond with love and graciousness as God has been loving and gracious towards us? In Matthew 18, Jesus tells the parable of the unmerciful servant. The man who is spared prison when his master cancels for no reason at all, just wipes out a debt in the hundreds of millions of dollars. But then he turns to a fellow servant who owes him $200 and says, if you can't repay me, you're going to prison. In light of God's mercy, hundreds of millions of dollars of debt wiped. Will you be merciful? Will you be merciful in conflict? We see that question asked clearly, uh, the principle commanded clearly in Romans 12 in a dozen different ways. Have a look at the passage again with me from verse 9. Love must be sincere. Will you love sincerely? Love is patient and kind. Anyone that's been to a wedding knows that. We know the passage, don't we? Is this the sincere love that we express in conflict? Love is patient and kind. Love doesn't envy or boast or be proud. It doesn't dishonour others. It's not easily angered. Keeps no record of wrongs. Doesn't delight in evil but rejoices with truth. It always trusts and hopes and perseveres. That is how we're to act in conflict. To love sincerely. It's not the pattern of this world. It's not this world, how this world will tell you how to love in conflict, but that is how we are to act in conflict. It is the promise of a spirit-empowered transformation through the renewing of our minds. That's how we'll do it. Will you love sincerely? Will you hate what is evil and cling to what is good? Verse 9 still. And not, not hate the evil uh, another person commits against you, but will you hate the evil that you are capable of committing? Will you flee from it? Will you cling to what is good like a husband leaves his mother and father and clings to his wife? Will you be intimately united to good? Verse 10, will you be devoted to one another? 
Will you be devoted to those you're in conflict with? Will you be patient in affliction and faithful in prayer in verse 12? Try praying for the good of those that you're in conflict with. Try it. See how it transforms your attitude towards them. Pray for their good. Will you bless those who persecute you as we're commanded to in verse 14? Will you live in harmony with one another in verse 16? Not as, not as peace fakers pretending nothing's wrong, but in harmony as we genuinely seek peace and reconciliation with those we're in conflict with. It's a challenging passage, isn't it? It isn't easy to do. I'm not pretending for a moment it's easy to do in any way, shape or form, but it's possible through the transforming work of the Spirit as He renews our minds into the likeness of of Christ's the challenge continues from verse 17 perhaps most clearly don't repay evil for evil don't repay anyone evil for evil if it's possible as far as it depends on you live at peace with everyone don't take revenge but on the contrary uh, on the contrary quoting Jesus himself Feed your enemy if he's hungry. Give him a drink if he's thirsty. Don't be overcome by evil. Again, this isn't saying don't let the evil of others overcome you, but don't let the evil, the sin that is crouching at your door, overcome you. But overcome evil with good. It's not the pattern of this world, is it? The pattern of this world is to take matters into our own hands, to administer justice ourselves if it is if it isn't reached elsewhere the way of the world at best is to ignore your enemy get them out of your life give them nothing so this is transformed thinking transformed living love your enemy bless them do them good Love those you're in conflict with. Bless them. Do them good. As much as it's in your hands, live at peace with them. Be restored to them. Pursue reconciliation. And pursue it. And pursue it. And pursue it as far as it depends on you. It's the image of chasing something. You know, an animal chasing prey. It pursues it and pursues it. It doesn't give up. That is how God pursues us. That is how we're to pursue others. Humble ourselves. Think of ourselves with sober judgment and then ask ourselves, how will we relate to those we're in conflict with? Will we love those we're in conflict with? Will we put their needs before our own? That's countercultural thinking. It really is, but we can do it. We can love our enemies, we can seek their forgiveness, we can look past any evil committed against us and show mercy because we have trusted in and submitted ourselves to the mercy and the justice of God. That's how we can do it. Friends, it's revolutionary thinking, it is transformed thinking. It doesn't in any way fit with the thinking and the patterns of this world, but it is the way through conflict to restored and reconciled and transformed relationships. It's the way we were created 
to be before sin took its hold and twisted our thinking. And it is possible through the transforming work of the Spirit in our minds and in our lives. And so let's pray and ask God through His Spirit to work that transformation in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we long for transformation. We long for deep and meaningful relationships at peace with each other, genuine peace. And yet the reality of our world is that we know uh, that so many of our relationships are not in this state. We long for transformation. Lord, by your Spirit, we pray that you would work that transformation into our lives. That you would not only bring peace in relationships, but that you would transform our hearts and our minds into the likeness of Christ, that that our hearts' desires and our minds' desires would be brought in line with yours, that you would transform our thinking to enable us to be at peace and that you would strengthen us to continue to pursue it time and time and time again, as much as we are able and as much as it's in our hands. Help us, strengthen us to continue to to pursue peace for your praise and glory. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.